Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Primid Year, session number 501. Hello, and welcome to The Premed Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. And welcome to The Premed Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an amazing guest, someone who has seen all aspects of the pre-med and med student journey. Today, we're talking to MAPS VP of Academic Advising, Dr. Scott Wright, who has been the Director of Admissions at UT Southwestern, then moved to the pre-med side as the Dean at UT Dallas, running the pre-health advising office there and then moving finally to TMDSAS, the whole application system, the first application system to medical schools here in the US uh, for all Texas medical schools, um, almost all of them, most public schools, uh, all public schools and, uh, and Baylor now as well. So Dr. Scott Wright is gonna join us, talk about his thoughts on being a pre-med student, what you should be doing, how you can quote unquote stand out or can you? And so much more. Dr. Scott Wright is a wealth of knowledge. You get to hear him every week on Ask Mapped as well when we do our live stream Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can hear Dr. Scott Wright sharing his wisdom. And if you're interested in working with Dr. Wright one-on-one, you can do that as well. Check it out at mapped.com. Calm. So without further ado, let's go and jump in. Say hello to Scott. Dr. Scott Wright, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. It's good to it's good. Well, it's good to see you. It's good to see uh, you. Quote, quote air quotes there. Yes. Good to see you, uh, Ryan. Yes. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming good. on the pre-mid years. Yeah, uh, of course. You have been uh an advisor now, the VP of academic advising at Mapped now for over two years, I think, maybe. Crazy, yeah. If we, if we count, yeah. who's counting? Um, yeah. And I figured, I, I'm, I don't know why we haven't brought you on before, but here we are yeah. uh, to kind of talk some academic philosophy, some advising yeah. philosophy, yeah. to yeah. share all of the secrets that you hold um, to 
TMDSAS because you're yes. the retired executive director of TMDSAS. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, everyone listening is going to be in store for a legend of the uh, pre-med <laughs> and med student world whatever, today. Whatever, I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you can, which is why I'm going to put all the pressure on you today. Let's let's get started. How does um, one become interested? You are, uh, I, I introduced you as Dr. Scott Wright. You are not a MD or DO in the doctor right. sense, but an education yep. doctor. Yeah. Um, how does one get involved to say, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be a dream crusher for students applying to medical <laughs> school uh, and go be the director of admissions at a medical school and just crush everyone's dreams? You know, I think it is like uh, many things in life. It was circumstantial. It was uh, incredibly circuitous route. Um, it was... Um, uh, happenstance, you know, I, I was, uh, I did my undergrad in history and I did a master's degree in history. I was on the trajectory to be a history professor was what I wanted to do. And, uh, as I, through some circumstances and, and things, uh, it became clear to me that that's really not what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I really loved the academic environment. And so I went back to graduate school to do uh, a doctorate in, in education and, and uh, to be in the space of, of uh, the scholastic world. And, 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 uh, and, and I had a background in college admissions. Uh, and so what happened was at right, at right at the time when I was going back to graduate school, I, uh, UT Southwestern Medical School in Dallas was uh, redesigning their admissions process and needed a director of admissions. And the stars aligned and everything happened. And uh, I knew admissions. I didn't know squat about medical education. Yeah. But I knew how to run a process and how to create a process. And so uh, it just kind of worked out for me to go there and, uh, and, 10 years into it, I was, you know, doing the admissions thing at Southwestern and things just kind of played out after that. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I ended up doing admissions work in, in, the, in the medical education uh, world. And, um, and so, you know, I, what, what I, what I've always taken away from that, Ryan, is that we always have to be prepared for whatever comes our way in, in life. And you have to be prepared emotionally, you have to be prepared experientially, you have to be prepared educationally. And if you're prepared, then you are ready to take on whatever opportunities come your way or, or, or exist that seem to align with your mission. And, uh, and so that's, that's a great uh, lesson, I think, for, um, for students is to, uh, you know, prepare yourself. And that's what they're doing, really, for uh, in, when they're in college, when they're in a post-bac program or whatever. Uh, it's really laying the groundwork, foundational groundwork yeah. for anything and everything that comes later. Yeah. At its core, I, as you familiarized yourself with the medical education world mm -hmm. as, as mm -hmm. a director of admissions, at its core, what would you say is the role of an admissions committee? 
Um, that's a really good question. And I think at its core is to, to guarantee as much as possible for the individual medical school, certainly. And then in, in a larger sense for medicine in general, it is to be the gatekeeper. It is to say, we want to make sure, number one, that this applicant is going to be appropriate for our institution, is going to connect in, in, in terms of fit, is going to be successful and in, in our curriculum, and is well-suited for being a physician in, in, the, in the sort of greater sense of, of, of things. Uh, and this really plays out when you consider that for example, law school, the, the attrition rate is, you know, 40, 50 percent uh, typically, uh, whereas for most medical schools in the United States, uh, the attrition rate is like 2 percent. Yeah. And so, you know, what this says is that the, it, the admissions committees in general are doing a good job of, of making sure that the, the students are going to be uh, a good fit for the profession as well as for their institution. Yeah. I I don't think I heard it all during that discussion. You say uh, our job is to make sure we get the students with the highest GPA and the highest MCAT score. Nope. Nope. It's not, it, it's really not about that. It, it is about the ability for the student to be successful and I think in the curriculum, certainly, but also uh, interpersonally with their peers, with the faculty, with the patients, uh, and, and, uh, and then later on, whether it's in residency or whether it's in their career, uh, being able to see um, the patient as, as primary mm. and uh, to be well-suited to helping those patients uh, live a life and die a death that is honorable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From the time you were the director of admissions at UT Southwestern, you had a stint at uh, UT Dallas as yep. a dean setting up pre-health office and all that fun stuff, running right. a pre-health office. Right. You then moved over to the executive director of, of TMDSAS, where you got to interface with all of the medical schools Correct. that interacted with and used TMDSAS. Right. What have you seen in terms of any sort of changes uh, along the medical school application process. And the, the one thing that comes to mind for me where we just were talking about stats is I, I think that's a relatively newer, at least on the surface thing to say maybe 30 years ago, you could get in with a 4.0 GPA and, and a near perfect MCAT score without a lot of other things because mm -hmm. we didn't mm -hmm. we didn't really have the data. We weren't really thinking through right. the soft skills and the bedside right. manner. And we just had a lot of assumptions around mm -hmm. the smartest people make the best doctors. And we're like, well, right. maybe not. And, and right. smartest meaning GPA MCAT, because th those are right. the only two things we could measure. Right. Um, it, it, I'm. Are, are my assumptions wrong there that that's one of the big changes and, and what other changes potentially have you seen over the years? Yeah. I mean, the changes I've seen run the gamut. Some of them are super practical. 
when I first started at UT Southwestern, we were still in the paper, mm. you know, the MCAT paper application, was, the paper application, the MCAT was, uh, was, you know, you go and you take it in a room and you're bubbling in the question. You know, the I, I took and, a paper MCAT. Yeah. Yep. And, and so practically speaking, a uh, lot of changes in terms of the MCAT and how it's taken, uh, changes in terms of how the, how a student applies and what they have to do to apply. And um, we would get these from TMDSAS weekly, we would get these giant boxes full of paper <laughs> applications and we would make file folders for every application. And we had all this, this bank of uh, file, draw, file, filing cabinets. And um, yeah, so, you know, it, it, that is, is a super sort of practical example, but I think that um, I, I agree that, you know, back, in the '90s, when which is when I started at, at Southwestern, I, aging myself there, um, that it, it was um, you know I think that there was a recognition then that um, the the uh, MCAT and GPA aren't sufficient uh, to identify somewhat somebody who's going to be a good doctor. Yeah. Uh, it, they can't identify somebody who's going to be good as a student. Um, in, in terms of the, 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 the cognitive uh, knowledge, the cognitive uh, so abilities, but it doesn't really do anything to, to say anything about how they're going to be when they're walking in that patient's room and, and, and interacting with that patient. And, you know, back in the old days, and when I, when I say old days, I'm talking about the 60s, the 1960s and 70s, the MCAT had what was called a general knowledge section. And it was stuff like, you know, um, it would have a question about pop culture and, uh, <laughs> and you had to, you know, you, you had to, you know, uh, answer this question about pop culture or geography or, um, Weird. you know, yeah. And if you think about it, th there's two sides to that. One is in, in a way it was, it was testing awareness, awareness of the world around you, awareness yeah. of what, what's going on and, and and, and just sort of like, as it suggests, just general sort of knowledge. The other side to that, it was very, could be filled with bias mm -hmm. uh, and, and against, you know, if you were somebody who was raised in a house that paid attention to pop culture, mm -hmm. then you would, would benefit from that. If you were somebody who was from a rural area that didn't have a television and didn't have a you know, very, very much to, to go on in terms of pop culture, then you were disadvantaged, enormously disadvantaged. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that it, it, it's sort of a, a hit or miss with, with that. But I, I do think that there's something to be said for testing emotional intelligence and, and, and how a student can um, be effective in a interpersonal relationship, which is what, a, what, a, what the doctor patient relationship is all about. Yeah. I know you love doing mock interviews with with mm -hmm. students who sign up and do mock interviews with mm -hmm. the the mapped team. What what is it about interacting with pre med students and and seeing kind of the the joy on their face, the excitement about going right. to medical school that that drives you? Oh, it's so you know it. The, the, my experience with with uh, 
with students over the years is has routinely been uh, exciting and exhilarating. And part of that comes from the passion, mm. the passion that the students have. They, in, in most cases, they've worked toward this end for many years or they've thought about it for many years. In some cases, it's a more recent thing. But, you know, I would say typically students have been thinking about this for a long time and working toward it. And, and they're passionate about wanting to be a physician for all the right reasons. And, uh, and, and so that is exciting to me. Uh, I, I like to see somebody in general that's passionate about whatever they're passionate about. Yeah. You know, you need to be passionate about something. And whether that's football or whether that's, you know, I'm sorry to bring up football, by the way. I was lost at, on Saturday. I was at the game when they lost. Oh, my so gosh. That was, it stung. It stung. That's all right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we need to be we need to have passion in our lives. And I, yeah. I love it that these students are passionate and that they are filled with uh just the the anticipation for for doing what they uh, what they wanted to do for yeah. a long time. Yeah, we work with uh, a lot of students. We talk with a lot of parents of those students, mm-hmm. yep. and and I, I think I mean going back to what we were just talking about a little bit earlier, the the focus on stats is still primary for a lot of students, and especially. Mm-hmm parents right if, if you're talking yeah, directly yeah. to the parents right now what do you want to tell them about like let your student do other things not just focus on grades yeah the, i think parents are you know and not exclusively but i i think parents are often really focused on grades they're focused on rankings uh they're focused on uh trying to um hurry it along in yeah. terms of the getting to the destination. And, uh, and I just think that, uh, that that's a disadvantage to the student. Uh, I think it, when, when you're hyper-focused on, on the metrics, which is sort of ironic because this, you know, we all lament the idea that we're so focused on the metrics mm. and yet the parents as the, as the support network in, in many cases for these students they're themselves pushing the students toward that end yeah. or that metric end of things. And so I would say to the parents is, is let your student, uh, let your student do it. Let your student be involved. You need to sort of take a back seat. Guidance is of course important. Yeah. And, and moral support is, is, uh, obviously uh, very important, but, um, I think that uh, parents and being a parent myself, it is very uh, uh, difficult to, to sort of let that student, you know, out of the nest and let them kind of sink or swim. And, you know, and but, but you have to uh, you have to do that. Yeah, we, we, we have gone through a period where parents don't like letting their kids fail. No. And I think that is a failure of it yeah. all by itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I had a, I had a student one time that I was interviewing and uh, the, the question I asked the student was, tell me about a time when you were told, no, you cannot do that. Mm. And what did you get out of that? And the student was like a deer in the headlights. And this particular student, I don't know that they had ever been told no to anything. Yeah. 
they they were top of their class in high school. They were top of their class in college. They were, you know, they they were they'd done it all and, and been successful at everything. And but but it said something to me, you know, as humans, I think there's a benefit, and we learned a lot about ourselves when we when we fail at something, when we can't do it, or we're told, "Sorry, you can't do that." Yeah, uh, we learn a lot about what life is about and and how you respond and and uh and roll with that and and that's why the medical schools really emphasize resilience and adaptability and uh because you know sooner or later you're gonna hear no whatever it is yeah and so how you deal with that is super important yeah we we had our our youngest in a daycare where the teachers would get in trouble if they told the kids no they yeah. they were allowed to redirect, but you couldn't say no. I'm like, oh, wow. mm, but but life, right? Yeah, life, yeah, right. That's, that's terrible. So, that's right. the the pre med students that you work with, um, that you as the VP of Academic Advising help, but our other advisors work with, if you could highlight like two or three things that, that you are seeing that, that our other advisors are seeing day in and day out of like, you need to fix this. You need to fix this. You need to fix yeah. this. What what do you think yeah. those, those top things would be? Yeah. I think that language is a very important thing. Um, and by language, what I mean is the ability to write, communicate, whether that's in writing or orally, uh, I think that's really important. Uh, and I'll give you a couple examples. We, you know, I, we routinely find um, students whose writing abilities are, are really um, not great. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and not just u- the use of grammar, uh, but I'm talking about communicating their thoughts in writing in a way that makes sense for somebody who's reading it, who, uh, who uh, doesn't know them and has never met them and is trying to understand their story and what it's, what it's been about. So I think writing uh, communication in writing is important uh, and communication orally. Uh, I, and I'll give you a good example. Um, I interviewed a uh, student, uh, did a mock interview with a student several weeks ago who um Used the word like mm. consistently in his responses, and uh, what and, and it was so distracting that I ended up at one point counting. I asked him a question, and I kept a, a little a, a little slash marks on my pad that I had uh, in front of me. And in the one response that he gave to that one question, he said the word like thirty four times. Wow. And so we talked about it afterwards. Yeah. And, uh, and I think what, what we have in our culture is it, our culture has become very casual. Yes. And uh, in, in a lot of different ways. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing necessarily, but I think that that has crept into our, our language and the ability for us to communicate in a way that's effective and that's appropriate. Yeah. And, uh, and so what, what I would say is, uh, that's another example of students sort of being self-aware and uh, being able to uh, generate a, um, a a means of communication that's going to be effective. Yeah, we have different, at least I, and I think in general, humans have different 
kind of gears that we can shift into when I'm doing a podcast or when we're live streaming, answering right. questions. Right. My F-bombs don't fly left and right. Right, right. Casually, right. I cuss like a sailor and yeah. and I, that's just who I am and, and I like doing it. It's whatever. And so do my yeah. kids and maybe that's a little bad, but hey, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when they start using cuss words appropriately, you're like, yeah, I'm a good parent. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> the, but I have a switch. Right when yeah. I when I'm on right. microphone, I don't do that stuff anymore. Right. How how does someone practice? I mean, is it literally just that? Is it just practice to go? Okay, well, I'm now in a more professional setting. I need to yeah. get away from my hanging out with my friends conversation and tone. Yeah, I think it's two things. I think number one, it's intentionality. Yeah, uh, it, it is. Is you have to intentionally. And secondarily, it's self awareness. You have to be aware. Number one of of who you are and how you communicate and how you, you know, whether it that's through nonverbal communication or whether it's through, you know, the words that you're saying, the inflection of your voice. Uh, but you have to be aware of what your tendencies are, what you're, you know, wh- what, what uh, do I tend to speak um, too quickly or do I spend, you know, tend to speak too, too uh, softly or too loudly or whatever. Uh, but then intentionality is knowing being self-aware and knowing what my tendencies are or what I do in regular everyday language, what's, a, in, what's appropriate. It's also about emotional intelligence. It's about being able to, to judge the character in the room that you're in and the setting and appropriately uh, be able to respond to those, uh, uh, to those cues and to those, uh, to, to, you know, the prompt, uh, whether it's, you know, an interview or whether it's a patient encounter or whether you're at a coffee shop with a friend, just have, just, you know, having a good time, recognizing that sometimes you adjust. Uh, and uh, so it takes those things, self-awareness and intentionality. And, and to, to further the, the story that I told about the student that said like a lot, uh, when we discussed that, he was very, you know, shocked and, 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 concerned and, and aware and, and literally a week later we did another um, we did another mock interview and he did not use the word like one time wow and he had been practicing 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 with his friends at ball games and you know just in daily life he had been really really intentional in terms of making that change yeah uh, and and to his credit he he did a great job of it yeah, I was just uh, just a couple of days ago at University of Florida mm-hmm. at the Kentucky game watching watching right, them lose, but right. but I was there because the Career Connection Center and the Pre Health Office invited me to keynote an event during uh, a mock interview kind of group interview MMI practice session they did for students during who who are in the interview cycle now or application mm-hmm. cycle. And that came up all the time. The students were doing their mock interview. The uh, advisors giving the feedback would say, hey, you're saying um an awful lot. And they would look at me and I'm like, really? And and I love the word intentionality because that's the word that I use all the time. It's Mm -hmm. just the being intentional about every single word leaving your mouth. Yep. It's not as hard as it it seems. It's not. You just it's slow not. down just the tiniest slow bit, down. and yep. and you go, oh, like, like, uh, yep. it's it's that easy. <laughs> uh, so, it it really is just 
first the self-awareness, right? Which is why we tell people whether you're doing a mock interview with us, whether you're doing it alone, whether you're doing it with your pre-held advisor, record yourself audio yes. and video yep. so you can watch yep. yourself, so you can hear yourself and, mm -hmm. and have someone sit down and give you that feedback to say, yep. hey, did you know? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. and, and having that ability to go, okay, now I see it. Now I hear it. Now let me stop it. And and that stopping part is is really the easiest part once you're yeah. aware of it. I agree. I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that it, it is a, a sense of we don't want we, – we typically don't think as we talk. Yeah. Uh, it, it's weird to say that. But I think we, we get in this in this sort of zone where we're just kind of the words are just coming out. And and it, it really is about thinking about every word that you are saying yeah. and being intentional. And that's where exactly what you said, slowing down. And I'm not talking about going really slow, but I'm just slowing down enough to where you're listening to yourself talk. Yeah. 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 That's good. That's good. Yeah. So. Yeah. When it comes to let's let's talk about specifically for students who are very early on in their process. A lot of them aren't sure where to go, what they're doing, if they're on the right track. We have mapped app software that hopefully all of them are signing up for because they can get a nice customized roadmap and map out their own journey to med school or PA school or wherever. Right. But students who potentially don't know what they don't know. And I, I was right. talking about this a lot this weekend. I, I was I spoke at four different schools in four days, which was crazy, uh, driving yeah. all over Florida. <laughs> and and one of the conversations I had was and technically a kind of like I was a first generation student. I never really used that sort of language before, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I was ignorant to a lot of the process and, and what it took to get into medical school, what it took to get into the residency that I wanted as an orthopedic surgeon. I didn't know the weight that the MCAT had on, on medical school admissions, whatever. How do students start figuring that stuff out if they don't know and they don't know to ask questions to figure it out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, number one, I would say that to me, the hallmark of an educated person is knowing what you don't know. Mm. Uh, if you don't know what you don't know, that's big time problematic. Yeah, uh, It's hugely problematic for a physician who doesn't know what they don't know. Yeah, Because that creates all kinds of problems. So I think developing the sense of, I don't know at all, I, I know very little, and, um, and, and really um, using that uh, to, um, you know, be able to uh, chart out, you know, what am I going to do in the next few days, weeks, months, years, whatever. Um, but what I would say is, you know, we, we grow up here, here in the United States. Uh, the vast majority of our applicants are, are U.S. citizens who uh, grew up in the U.S. Um, we do have international students, and we do have first-generation Americans. And but I would say the vast majority are have grown up in this culture, and we live in a culture that is very individualistic. It is very, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to, 
you know, be successful and, and, uh, you know, I'm responsible for me and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that what we have to do as, as educators and what a student has to do as a, as a, as a part of that, that educational process is to recognize that this is not a go it yourself alone kind of mentality, uh, kind of, you know, kind of enterprise. And you have to, if we will, if, if a student will set the groundwork saying, I know uh, that I don't know everything and that as an individual, I can't do this alone. I need a support network for my family and friends. And I also need advisors who are going to help me in this process. Mm-hmm. And so I reach out to the advisors, even when I know or I think I know the right answer, then I have to reach out to verify that, to confirm that that is accurate. Uh, And that is, I think, a part of what can begin uh, the process for for an early on type of student to to be able to uh, do this in a a way that's going to get them where they want to go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was talking about my journey and to, to these students, and I said one of the biggest things, number one, I said, I, I don't think, me personally, think that being a first-generation student is a quote-unquote good enough excuse about a lack of knowledge, especially mm-hmm. today when we have mm-hmm. supercomputers in our pockets yes. for the most yes. part, right? Yeah. right, um, right. And, and it's not to say that first-gen students don't have obstacles and barriers and, and lots of things. That's not what I'm saying. Right. right. But I think if we can just start with, and I was trying to trying to figure out a way to to, to help them understand what to do. And I, I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And I think just having the ability to be inquisitive, which is a very good trait to have as a doctor, the ability to say, okay, I'm a senior in high school. I'm a first year in undergrad. I want to go to medical school let me pull up this website called Google and say, what do first year students need to know about going to medical school? And Google that. And then find something and then Google that. And then find something and then Google that and just go down the rabbit hole until you think you've answered a lot of questions. And of course there's gonna be more out there, but that will probably give you more information than I had all of going through undergrad. Because we didn't have that, I didn't have that stuff growing up, right? Right. Uh, uh, Thankfully I'm not as old as you are, but I still still didn't have, um, I mean, we had flip phones back then and we didn't have the the internet as it is today, uh, which is is phenomenal resource that everyone has. And of course, our podcasts and our our weekly live Q and A's that we do together as a, a, a mapped team, which is awesome, and then obviously our, our software that we put out and one on one advising sessions if if someone can um, uh, invest in those. So I mean, yeah. there's there's no excuses anymore for not having answers because we have so much information out there, both as a company ourselves, but also just the internet and Google being able to, and and YouTube. And I, I agree with that completely. And, and and the the caveat I would add to that is always seeking confirmation. Yes. Particularly when you're doing a lot of Google searching and, you know, there's, the benefit of the supercomputer in our <laughs> in our pocket is that we have the world at our fingertips. the The downside to that is 
there's a lot of crap out there yeah. that is not accurate or that is misleading yep. or whatever. And so it really requires us to be able to recognize and com- and, and seek confirmation from advisors and, and yeah. from from others that can really help you know what's what. Yeah. Or or just learning, right? I think this is this should be part of elementary education these days. Yeah. My my yeah. daughter was in the back seat recently. We were we were driving as a family somewhere and she goes, "Oh, I I forgot. I was supposed to look up how much water the human has uh, in its body. And so mm-hmm. she had my wife's phone and she, she knows how to use a, an iPhone. And she went to Safari and Googled it. And she was like, oh, 75%. And so I asked, I'm like, well, where did you get that knowledge? Where did you get that number? Mm-hmm. And I, I was trying to explain to her, like, just because you found a number online doesn't mean it's true. It's, um, uh, and so how do you how do you learn to to... Uh, just be very discerning about all of that and ask follow-up questions. Go, okay, I see you said 75. Let me look through the article and see where you're sourcing your information from. Mm -hmm. And let me go to them and let me see where they're sourcing Mm -hmm. it from. Let me go to them. And then you you finally get to the end where it's like, hey, a study of of 40,000 people said the average whatever water that the body has is 75%. Here's how we got to that number. Great. I'm good. I can believe that number. Uh, And being able to, to learn how to do that. And even as physicians, I think the biggest thing that I learned in medical school wasn't the knowledge specifically. It was learning how to ask the questions to find the Mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and if we can start teaching that to younger and younger people, I think number one, we'd probably have a lot less issues with misinformation online because people will be able to ask questions and go, "Eh, that sounds a little weird. Let me, let me do a little more research on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I I think it's, I think it's important to know uh, for everyone going through this process. How do you, how do you get those answers? Um, And so one of the things that we do here at MAPT is we do a lot of one-on-one advising for, for someone, whether it's a student or a parent out there thinking about investing in advising with one of our, uh, one of our wonderful advisors or maybe with a, another uh, advisor somewhere um, sure. outside of their own advisor at their university mm-hmm. or maybe they don't have access to one. Where do you think is the line between I can do it myself with all of the amazing free resources that the map team p- puts out, uh, or I want to invest in, in some one-on-one help. Yeah. I mean, I think that a student uh, has to be kind of, again, it goes back to self-awareness. It goes back to knowing yourself, being able to judge what capabilities you have. Um, you know, I think that we all like to think that we, have the wherewithal, whether it's financial wherewithal or whether it's cognitive wherewithal or whatever, to to be able to trudge forward in a process. But I think all in all, what we're talking about here is, again, getting back to this notion that connection with other humans is important. Hmm. Uh, If it's because I need to verify some information, it's because I need guidance, uh, if, if it's because, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, connection with other humans is important. Uh, this is what teaches us and how to be good uh, members of society and good, uh, you know, physicians, uh, et cetera, because that's what we that's what a physician does is interact with with people. 
Yeah. And uh, and so I unless think you're a pathologist. Really... Yeah. Well, that is <laughs> just true. kidding, I, and... pathologists. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, they're interacting with people on a micro. Level. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, in general, I think that that's, you know, that's what, you know, that's what, pe- that's what students need to get used to. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, Dr. Scott writes, students can ask you questions most Wednesdays on our yep. Asked Map live stream we do at mapped.tv. That's M-A-P-P-D.tv. Uh, mm-hmm. You also do one-on-one advising a, a little yes. bit as you're the, yep. the head yep. honcho. And so yep. you're you're busy helping all the other, other advisors as well. Um, you're also a, a regular contributor to Application Academy, which is our group yep. coaching. So there are lots of ways to connect with you yes. um, through MAP. So what is uh, one one final word of wisdom that you want to give students as we wrap up here? Um, good question. I think one final word of wisdom. Um, you know, I would say to try your best uh, to be, um, and, and I don't want to use the word chill. I mean, I think we, we use that, you know, kind of jokingly sometimes we'll just chill out or whatever. Yeah. But, um, I, I think that, um, students need to see, um, what's occurring as a, a part of the, the give and take of life and of being a, a, in existence in this, in this world. And, uh, and, and just because something happens that you didn't anticipate doesn't mean the wheels are going to fall off or that your dream is dashed. It mm-hmm. means, uh, you know, this is particularly true for reapplicants or for those that took the MCAT and didn't do as well as they wanted to do or had a rocky first year or two in college or, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, why you ne- may need to reflect on that. But just, um, you know, kind of... Um, be thoughtful, be resilient in seeking this passionate part of your life and uh, keep working hard. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. Scott Wright, the VP of Academic Advising at MAPT. Uh, before we leave, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minute brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. And I want to talk about MCAT registration. It's opening up soon uh, as this episode is coming out. It's the end of September MCAT registration historically opens up mid, beginning to mid of October every single year. The MCAT dates for next year just released. So if if this is the future, hello future, I hope the world is good. Um, The MCAT dates typically come out near the end of September for the following year. And then registration opens up sometime kind of mid-October-ish. So that's when to to stay tuned for MCAT dates. So that's an important thing. Start building your schedule using Blueprint MCAT's free schedule planning tool that you get with a free account over at blueprintmcat.com. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.